crusty and angry. And, you know, you can tell he wants to move faster than he's going in a lot of ways. He is speaking to an older tradition of a masculinist outward travel writing that, you know, we probably haven't seen since Hemingway, really. Hello, and uh, welcome to the University of Minnesota Press podcast. I'm Eric Lundgren. I'm the Outreach and Development Manager at the University of Minnesota Press, and it's a pleasure to be here today with Daniel Hornsby. Dan is the author of Via Negativa and the forthcoming book, Sucker, uh, coming out from Anchor. Is that right? 2023. Yep, exactly. And you teach at uh, McAllister, teaching fiction at McAllister. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the book. We're here today to discuss the um, English publication of On the Wandering Paths by Sylvain Tasson. This book is sort of a travelogue. It takes place, I believe the walk was taken in 2014 through the late summer and fall. And um, the author, Tesson, had recently uh, gone through some, some pretty harrowing stuff, which we'll sort of hear about in his preface a little later on. His mother had passed away, and he also had taken a fall from the roof of a chalet. He had sort of made his career as an adventurer, undertaking these adventurous journeys. One of the things he was known for was climbing, but he uh, unfortunately had this had this really terrible accident, which left him with you know some pretty significant health issues to deal with. So um, in the aftermath of this, he uh, undertook this journey, traversing really the the whole of France, starting out in Paris, heading northwest, all the way to sort of the the beaches of Normandy at the end of the book. There was a sense of wandering of exploring these hidden pathways in the rural regions of France. And Dan, this, um, this sort of put me in mind of Via Negativa, one of my favorite, um, not just debut novels, but one of the favorite novels um, of, of recent years for me. Oh, thanks, man. That's so, that's so kind. I, I, I thought it, you know, it's, it has that, um, Calvino uh, talked about lightness, right, as one of the virtues of, of literature, not in the sense of like being insignificant, but being sort of fleet, right, that it has this um, buoyancy to it, despite the fact that your book sort of deals with, you know, really profound spiritual issues. Um, there is also this, this sense of lightness throughout it, and that's one of the things I, I really appreciate about it. Maybe just to start us off. Um, since you were so kind to write the foreword for this book, um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just uh, sort of reading it for us as a way to get into this discussion. Yeah, I would be happy to. And and just, you know, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about the book. And it really you know touches me that you enjoyed my book. So thank you, buddy. I, I really appreciate that. I'm really moved by that. So, um, okay. So I will just dive into this. This is the foreword that I put together for On the Wandering Paths. When I was in my early 20s, my friends and I drove to the middle of Kansas, and by extension the geographic center of the country, to play a concert for the richest man in town. We were idiots. We scraped money together for a tour by promising to play a house show for anyone who gave us $100. Uh, we'd done the tour, and now it was time to pay up. The five of us packed our minivan with all our equipment in Manhattan, Kansas, where we went to school at the big agricultural university, and drove three hours west to Lorraine, where our patron lived. There, our host, think something between old Keith Richards and the human incarnation of divorce, greeted us and explained his scheme for the show. His goons would raise us on two parallel forklifts so that once we started playing, we'd emerge from behind the wall enclosing his Jimmy Buffett-style saltwater pool. It was a terrible idea, but we were young and stupid and agreed to it. We hoisted up our equipment and climbed on the yoga mat-sized piece of metal borrowed from the cattle gates that made our patron's fortune. When the time came to play, the two forklifts didn't quite sink, creating a kind of metal hiccup. We survived and played the show, which did turn out to be fun despite our teetering 30 feet above an artificial waterfall. I spent the rest of the weekend bouncing between my friends' childhood homes. Driving through the country, I realized how far from each other people lived out there. Two of my best friends, who grew up together and attended the same tiny high school, lived almost a half an hour away from one another and that is driving at college student speeds. 
And as Sylvain Tesson will soon reveal in the book you're about to read, or hopefully you, you know, at home will pick up and buy. One of the ironies of the countryside is that the bucolic art of national mythmaking is entirely reliant on machines. The grain elevators looked like castles on Venus, the only things crossing the barrier between the ground and sky. At night, you could see every star, along with their usually hidden understudies. I grew up in exurban Indiana. My home and high school were surrounded by corn and soy, monoculture in every sense. I was no stranger to the concept of a field. But in Kansas, this was a different scale. Even with this hyper-compression, the enormity of time is palpable. You feel about as big as a fruit fly with the same longevity. These rural eternities at much lower speeds are the subject of Sylvain Tassan's On the Wandering Paths. One year after falling off a roof and seriously injuring himself, Tassan walks through the French countryside, meditating on the world around him that has also fallen and maimed itself too. This, I think, helped dredge up my memory of teetering on the forklift. Tassan's concept of self, and man, that feels a little callous now, but I mean, he really did hurt himself. I don't mean to make light of that, but I mean, it, it was dangerous, <laughs> yeah. I will say, up there. Tassan's concept of self and country grinds against a less than picturesque reality. You are getting old. Your world is in sad decline, too. Tassan is rightly pleasantly cranky. Like many of you, probably, I feel as if I've been duped. In exchange for a little convenience, we've destroyed the world and alienated ourselves from everyone. For us, Tassan offers a delightfully bitter Jeremiah on globalism and decay, while keeping a toe in eternity, born from a vision of a new map of the landscape. To find your own original path of thought, Tassan suggests you walk a new path through the world. And here's a quote. I now dreamt of a movement I would baptize as the Guild of the Invisible Paths. Not satisfied with simply mapping a cartographic network of physical geographical space, the Invisible Paths could also define the mental cartographies we would use to carve out another mode of seeking exile and withdrawal from our current frenetic age. Sketching out our cartographic movements on newly formed maps and cutting our physical movements through the serpentine pathways in the landscape, we would also simultaneously be sketching mental cartographies. Tassan isn't romantic. This isn't an eclogue with tipsy shepherds singing to their girlfriends. Rural life is exactly where ancient cycles of growth and death meet industrialized farming and property development. Tassan gives a clear-eyed account of his walk through the contemporary, industrialized countryside. He's something of a 19th century man, a Thoreau in motion. An explorer has come back from distant regions. He once made a much longer walk, a 5,000-kilometer trek through the Himalayas. A Jack London type, I guess. In keeping with this, Drew Burke's translation pleasantly oscillates between more rigid 19th century syntax and bright colloquial bursts. Despite this high stakes and dark picture, there are a lot of small joys here, as when Tessan fondly describes birds as retired masters of the planet. With their aloof way of carrying themselves, their disquieting appearance, fierce eyes, and dragon-like features, it's as if they've almost retained some memory of that former age. Sitting on their corner carpets, they must say to themselves, Ah, those were the days when we governed the world, 65 million years ago. Will we meet the same fate as theirs? On the Wandering Paths places Sylvain Tassan and a long tradition of riders fleeing civilization to find something older than empire. The holy men and women of Lower Egypt, Basho, Thoreau, and the anonymous narrator of The Way of the Pilgrim. It can be seen in the larger tradition of French walking literature. The works of Jean Jono, A Philosophy of Walking by Frédéric Gross, but it also pairs nicely with Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing as part of a fresh syllabus for rejecting the world we've inherited. By the end of the book, Tassan reminds us that the invisible paths are still out there, even in a world that seems thoroughly mapped. We had learned at least one thing. We could still depart straight ahead in front of ourselves and struggle with nature. There were still valleys where we could fill entire days without laying our eyes on another single person to tell us which direction to take. All we had to do was seek them out. Thank you so much, Dan. Really enjoyed hearing that uh, read out loud. And I should uh, tell our listeners up front, just so that they don't elevate their expectations too much, that we are amateur enthusiasts of, of French literature, uh, not experts on French geography, and that we may butcher one or two French place names in the course of this recording. And that's just out of ignorance. It's not uh, contempt or anything like that. <laughs> 
I think I want to talk a little bit about your book, Via Negativa, you know, with Tesson on the side. Um, we have a book called On the Wandering Paths, so I think we can wander a little bit, sort of have Tesson as our guide. I feel, feel semantically justified in doing that. So in your book, we have a priest by the name of, of Father Dan who's making a sort of westward journey. By car, he's in a he's in a Camry, Toyota Camry, um, and he's got a uh, a wounded coyote in the back seat, which is kind of picked up, you know, on page one, right? It's almost right away, and that coyote stays with him throughout much of the journey. So you have this sort of wildness there that's contained in the back seat. But we also have the title of the book, which I think, you know, is a really beautiful title. Also a sort of organizing principle for the book in some way. And put me in mind of the Tesson book because um, in the original French, I think it's called something more like on the dark paths or on the black roads even. So you have that kind of similarity in how the two of you have kind of framed your books. But I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Via Negativa and, and what that means to you and, and, and maybe how you used it to, to write this book. Yeah. So the Via Negativa, you know, it's one of those like kind of took a risk maybe giving my novel an unwieldy Latin title, but it refers to a kind of theological tradition or theological branch, also known kind of as like apophaticism which has to do with like avoiding language, avoiding positive language or images when referring to the divine. Um, and so the biggest thinker, the, the kind of father of this lineage is Pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite, who is like, you know, an early Christian thinker who kind of sets this up to be picked up by the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing. Aquinas is really influenced by him. And it's just this way, I think, you know, it, it becomes marginalized because it's not really like useful in a political sense to say, oh, we can't really define what God is or we can't, you know, capture God in images. You know, and some people call it, you know, the way of denial. Um, and so I think, you know, with the book, I'm kind of playing with that tradition, but then also thinking about, you know, an actual via, you know, a road, a kind of pilgrimage um, and also thinking about denial more generally, since my narrator, you know, he's a, a retired priest, and he's very much in denial of just kind of the heinous acts committed by other priests and the ways in which he's complicit with that. And so I tried to, you know, make that the key to the book in a way. And, you know, like, I think like all of us, you know, we take on these worldviews that don't only intellectually resonate, right? Like more often they're going to emotionally resonate and sometimes do something for us. And I think for him, you know, not having to define what matters most to him with language, uh, resisting talking about what's in his heart, it makes a lot of sense to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because you also have that sense with, you know, even some of his friendships that he's sort of fallen short. He's chosen to remain hidden, to sort of like remain unavailable to these people, even though they're close to him and that he loves them. But there's something in him that hasn't allowed him to be sort of fully present uh, for those people, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's dead on. And the way the book sort of operates, I should say, um, it sort of toggles between this road trip that the priest is on. And also sort of memories of his spiritual life, I would say. It's a sort of spiritual autobiography. And these memories that he has, though, are not necessarily of, you know, <laughs> fulfilling his pastoral duties or, you know, the kind of day-to-day -day work of the priesthood. They're sort of marginal or like liminal sort of experiences that he has that are often very playful. You know, drugs are involved in a few of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of these experiences that, that almost happen on the margins of his life. So in that in that sense too, I, I I felt like it was a kind of via negativa that we were getting to know him through these sort of shadowy experiences from the corners of his life in a way. But there also seemed to be, you know, perhaps some kind of injury there for him. So that might be another place of connection with with Tassan. I can see that for sure. Yeah, it's actually making me think, you know, there's a kind of irony, I think, to what do they call it? Like pulling a geographical, right? Like people have a breakup and then they drive across the country and they're just like, okay, I live in California now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like that's kind yeah. of a thing. Right. And there's, there's this kind of irony there that I think it's maybe true for my book and definitely maybe true for on the wandering paths too, where like, 
you're trying to escape something. And it's not just that like you're bringing the thing you're trying to escape from with you, that cliche, but also that like just the act of traveling a great distance to escape a thing means that you have all of this time to think about that thing, right? Like you're in the car. I mean, I think about this, like when, when you drive, I don't know, does this happen to you, Eric, where you're dri- you, know, you make a long drive and memories will just kind of like bubble up as you're staring into space. And it's true for walking too, but I think we like distract ourselves a lot with music and things like that. Things will just kind of come out of nowhere and I'll have like strange memories from decades ago that will just kind of hit me in ways that they just won't in my apartment or in my neighborhood. Yeah, there is absolutely something about traversing those vast spaces that brings things back. Um, And you do go into this sort of like meditative state, or maybe you're permeable to those memories in a way that you usually aren't. It does bring up, and I think, you know, your forward brings this up too, about, you know, just the sheer vastness of the country. I mean, America, you know, that (laughs) undertaking something like what Tassan did in France, uh, (laughs) you would have to do it by car, right? I mean, it's just... I don't know. I was thinking of that one guy who was sort of an environmentalist. He did a lot of walking uh, to sort of like as a protest on climate change, right? And I don't know. I think he may have done some hitchhiking along the way, but um, you know, he was he was largely on foot, I believe. I feel like that guy died. Did he? Yeah, die? he, died. he also died. So you know, probably not a model that anyone should. <laughs> um, my partner and I, we went to the, we were like just at went down to the river a couple of days ago and. You know, I'd moved from Memphis to Minneapolis maybe six months ago. The two of us have. It's weird to think uh, this is the same river. You know, weird, like so far away from Memphis, but this is the same river. And it would be crazy to just kind of walk alongside it yeah. to Memphis. You could. And she was like, you would get <laughs> <That's> killed. <right. laughs> like, just like, it just seems too dangerous. Do you know what I mean? Like, whether it's a car or something, but like, it just... I don't know. In America, it just seems like, no, you're you're going to get murdered if you do that. Yeah, the, the landscape is not set up for it. In fact, it's it's often like actively like adversarial to someone like trying to walk. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've lived um, like I lived in Baton Rouge um, for a while and St. Louis as well. So it's like the river has always been there. And um, I had a similar experience a couple of days just enjoying this lovely weather we've been having in Minneapolis of walking to, to the Mississippi and seeing kind of its power and feeling that, you know, and I just had like I left my phone at home and just had the keys in the pocket and like it started raining a bit. And I was like, I don't even care, you know, because it doesn't matter. That's lovely. Yeah, I love that. Just like a music video moment. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think that's what Jenny O'Dell, you know, gets at so well. And I think what the pandemic has kind of brought to the fore for me a lot is just how important that that connection is with the forest, with trees, with nature. I've felt it in a more kind of urgent (laughs) way in the last few years, you know. And when that's not available, which is sometimes the case, you know, in, in Minnesota in the winter, it's really hard to get through. We've just gotten through a pretty, a pretty rough winter. So that's sort of the, the context of feeling like, you know, along with Tassan, you know, going out into the forest and the woods at this time feels like a really kind of restorative process. So I thought I might read a little bit of Tassan's preface, because I think it's just just to give everyone a sense of kind of his voice. And um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I don't think we quite have time for that, but um, we'll get it started. This is also some of his more personal writing that he does in the book. So for that reason, I'd like to read it as well. The past year had been rough. For a long time now, the gods had blessed the family, and we had been fortunate to bask in their sweet embrace. Perhaps some of them propped themselves up against us like fairy tales. And then suddenly their smiles turned into grimaces. We didn't really have much of an idea about how any of this worked, but we would politely partake in this fate with an energetic ambivalence. A subtle force made its way through us with hardly the least bit of gratitude, but nevertheless left us burdened with the lightest of fatigues. Life had begun to resemble one of those beautiful paintings by Bonar. A sun-drenched yellow permeated the white jackets and tablecloths laden with fruit cups, and a bounty of fresh air gently passed through the open windows from the adjacent orchard where one could see children playing. Outside, the apple trees were whistling in the wind, 
In the end, it was perhaps the ideal decor for a good smack in the face. And it didn't wait long to arrive. My sisters, nephews, and pretty much everyone else seemed to have been snared by one of those misfortunes that moves through the ramparts of the city like some medieval tale. A shadow slowly saunters through the narrow cobbled streets, reaching the heart of the city, and finally the gates of the dungeon. One thing seemed clear, the plague was progressing. My mother had died the way she had lived, standing me up. And there I was, taken to drink, having completely wrecked myself and busted up my face while playing the fool on some rooftop. That evening I had fallen from a ledge and landed back on earth. All it took was eight meters for me to break my ribs, fracture my skull, and vertebrae. Come down from the heavens, I had fallen back to earth in a pile of bones. I deeply regretted this fall because for a long time I had been well equipped with a physical machinery that had allowed me, had allowed me to live a rather high-octane sort of life, always plowing full speed ahead toward the next adventure. From my perspective, the noble existence resembled something like the Siberian long-haul truck checkpoints. All the warning signs are in red, but the machine keeps on slicing its own pathway through the landscape, and the slightest Cassandra resembling a character from the idiot on the side of the road, waving their hands frantically to indicate a catastrophe ahead was simply turned into roadkill. Robust health? In just eight meters, I had aged 50 years. So they picked me off, up off the ground, and I would come back to life, comatose and dead. I wasn't even able to attend my mother's funeral or catch a glimpse of her while in heaven. A hundred bi billion humans have been born on this earth since the time Homo sapiens became, became what we have become. Do you really think you'll end up finding a close friend within the chaos of some eternal anthill teeming with cherubs? We'll leave it at that, although he goes on to discuss his sort of stay in the hospital and looking out at this tree that's outside his window. So that seems to be, you know, maybe even sort of the seed of this journey through France that he undertakes, dealing with a lot of physical pain, <laughs> as well as a partial kind of facial paralysis that he's dealing with. I think at one point he's in a church and the, this woman hands him a you know, 20 euro note and says, you know, say, say a mass for whoever you want, <laughs> you know, that people are taking pity on him. So, I mean, what do you make of, of the figure in this book or, or Tassan as, as he presents himself and this sort of like journey of recovery? Is it something that you can kind of relate to or does it feel strange or other? Yeah, I found myself really taken by his crankiness. I think that when I kind of was like, okay, I'm gonna read this book, write this intro, I was thinking, okay, there would be a kind of sentimentality. Like it just seemed like that was gonna be there, right? That there'd be some kind of inward journey of discovery. And it would be kind of not syrupy, but you know, like a um, bad French movie that gets like an Oscar <laughs> nomination. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it would have and, and I like that he was he's kind of crusty, and angry. And, you know, you can tell he wants to move faster than he's going in a lot of ways. And I, I, I don't know, even with the animals, like he, I, I think he's most sympathetic to, you know, like the wolves that he describes being kind of chased with the sound of engines or birds. He, they're beautiful passages about birds. I read one a little bit earlier and, but he likes them because they're like not <laughs> <Right>. soft, <laughs> that they're, that they, they have hard edges and that they're kind of bitter. Um, it kind of projects that onto them. I thought that was incredibly refreshing. I mean, he's very forthcoming with the pain and tragedy early on, but then that I think moves backward, or it moves back in. I think into the background. Isn't that a little surprising? There isn't a moment where he's like really thinking about his mother in some kind of sentimental way later. Like you would imagine, oh, I was in the mountains and I thought about her and. Or even some, you know, the way that maybe the way a, a novelist might make a character do that, you know? Sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I was thinking about this a little bit in terms of Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild. Oh, yeah. And not to disparage like either of the books in any way. Like I think what Cheryl Strayed does, she does like extremely well. You know, has some similarities. 
her mother dies. She's going through a divorce. She takes on this journey of, you know, walking the entire Pacific Crest Trail. But it's so different in that, you know, you're completely inside her emotional experiences as you go along. You know, there are these mini dramas about, you know, her hiking boots have worn down to the point where they're completely useless, scraping her ankles raw. And there's this drama of, is she going to get the money she needs to get more, you know, get new hiking boots? And she takes you inside all of that. Yeah. To Sun, it seems with the possible exception of this preface. I think you're you're absolutely right. Really um, keeps all that at a distance. Looking at the history of the land, trying to be present with the natural life that's there, to have those encounters with, yeah, you know, whether it's arachnids or you know, you have vultures. It's kind of a creepy form of wildlife that he seems to gravitate towards. Right. He has a, a kind of resentment towards herbivores <laughs> right like you can, you can kind of see that you know like genetically modified herbivores i think he says at one point and like uses their genetic modification as a symptom yeah. of our <laughs> decay you know where he like oh i like these wolves because right. they're vicious and you know yeah. they work against that but he's always like tracing the spirals of birds of prey in the air and things like I think you're you're so right. Those are the animals he's fond of. He doesn't really want to like look at some pigs or talk to a cow or anything like that. Well, yeah, and even even some of his encounters with the shepherds and the the farmers and and people that he meets, you know, there's a great encounter early on. Let's see if I can find it here where he's talking to a shepherd, asking him questions and Hi, are you making your way down to the city, I asked. No, he said. Is your flock somewhere up there in the hills? No. Are you heading down to take a break for a bit? No. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just kind of answers in the negative and and, um, seems to like foreclose really any of the sense of possibly, you know, communing with these people or getting some some wisdom or something like that as you might in one of those kind of sentimental French films that gets the Oscar. You know, like the French countryside is a kind of product that is sold around the world. There is an industry around it, and it is a significant part of the French economy. You go to the Pantheon, and there are a lot of writers there. They're another seed of this kind of nationalism. Don't you think? I mean, I I would say filmmakers maybe more, but like just nowadays. But like when you think of kind of French culture, like, you know, Flaubert and Hugo or whoever, like it goes on and on. And I was wondering if, like, there's an interesting pairing there, you know? And he does seem to be cast in a kind of older mold of a kind of, I don't even know if it's a kind of masculinity, but a certain kind of macho writer. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's really smart, Dan. I think that, for me, really, um, is the same sense that I get that he is sort of speaking to an older tradition of, yeah, a masculinist kind of outward travel writing that, you know, we probably haven't seen since since Hemingway, really. I mean, you know, maybe the beats to some extent, you maybe look at travel writers like Peter Matheson, who also, you know, both Tassan and Peter Matheson wrote these books about the snow leopard and, and going to Tibet. But um, it kind of, you know, with the mountaineering and all that stuff kind of takes me back to to Hemingway. And, you know, I, I, I got to say that's a tradition that I'm a little bit wary of. Me too. I should say, too, just to give a little bit more sort of context on Tassan, because I don't feel like he's known that well. Have you ever like heard him come up in, in conversation or anything like that? The first I heard of him was with his Snow Leopard book. Um, I think I read... Uh, a review of it in the New Yorker or something like that. That's right. Um, Catherine Schultz wrote a really good piece about that book, which was retitled The Art of Patience uh, for the American edition. (laughs) Sure, of course. In the French, I think it was originally just called The Snow Leopard. I think here, you know, they had to deal with the you know, the Matheson book. I, I wish they would have kept it. It could have been like the replacements, let it be. You know what I mean? Just like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just go with it. Because if you're going to do a Snow Leopard book, I mean, you might as well just. If one of us were to write a book about whales, let's <laughs> just call right. it Moby Dick, yeah, too. Absolutely. You know, like, let's just commit. <laughs> absolutely. He's pretty close to a celebrity in France, if not a celebrity. He sold, I think the Snow Leopard book sold in excess of, of 500,000 copies in France. 
his other book, uh, which is about, he also went to Lake Baikal in Siberia. It's the, the world's largest freshwater lake. I always remember hearing that as a kid because, um, you know, Lake Superior is kind of like my first experience of that kind of vastness, you know, as 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 close as I got to the ocean as a kid, as a young kid. And, you know, that was always the second, you know, the second largest freshwater lake. And then we heard about that, you know, the Siberian lake. But the Tassan went and lived there for, you know, I think about six months through the winter. You know, he's out chiseling through the ice in the morning to um, to get to the water so he could fill his water bucket and chopping wood. And he's out there in the cabin, um, you know, smoking, smoking cigarillos and, you know, drinking whiskey and reading. Um, I think he brought like Nietzsche and, you know, like Schopenhauer out there. <laughs> of course. Right. Right. I love it. And you, you just see him with like a big knife and a gun, and, you know, and drinking yeah. by himself. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to picture this. And like you know exactly right. what kind of hat yeah. he wears. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's like, got he's got the pipe too in, in some of the author photos. Um Yeah, see he seems to be sort of consciously taking up this mantle of I don't want to say a uh, national literature of some kind almost. He mentions at one point in this book and on the wandering paths that he um you know he was obsessed with the French Empire and that he, he even wore a bicorn helmet in the in the tub. Do you remember that? So funny. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you know, Napoleon comes up a few times, yeah. That's one of the other books, too, um, that has made it into English. Um, he he followed the, it's called Berezina, from Moscow to Paris, following Napoleon's epic fail. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, Europa put that out a couple of years ago. He's been, um, you know, pretty well translated uh, into English, but... You know, probably hasn't saturated to the point that he has in France. I was trying to read a little bit of the French sort of coverage on him. And there's at least one article that was sort of like accusing him of being kind of a reactionary, which I can kind of understand where that's that's coming from. I mean, you know, the crankiness. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on board with that. And a certain amount of, of misanthropy. You know, I have no trouble with that either, usually. But there's a sense of, you know... When he's writing about globalization, when he's writing about the encroachment of digital surveillance, um, sort of the digital world screens into our lives. I think he says at a couple of points, like, I arrived here, you know, a thousand years too late, right? He, he's, he's looking at these ruins and seeing another form of life that is, if not completely vanished, sort of on the verge of doing so, right? I feel like there are moments in the book, too, where he's kind of more critical of his nostalgia. How, how do you make sense of that? I do like when he kind of spins out cosmically without sentimentality. And I find that endearing for the most part. But yeah, you do get this sense that he would like, the th I guess the thing I wonder is like, when would he like to live? I imagine that he, he kind of wants typewriters to exist, but not computers. You know, maybe I think he would like to be a late 19th century person. Because like, I just can't imagine. I mean, I think what we, we tend to especially with the Romans, we either think like, oh, they had really clean water and everything was great. Or we think it was like a complete, it was completely dire. But like, I can't imagine he would actually want to live under Roman rule. There are moments where that does seem like maybe something he would be into, but you're like, dude, you're, you're going to have par like parasites you don't know about. You know what I mean? Yeah, there are moments though, you know, where he, when he's writing about what the day-to-day -day life of, you know, a farmer in the country would be like, where it seems like he's not really romanticizing that, that he understands. And I, I, I appreciated that. He actually seems to have like contempt for people who like, like sometimes, you know what I mean? Where especially, at least for industrial farming, uh, which is totally understandable. But yeah, you know, and I wonder about this too, because it's like the oldest literary tradition. It's like Theocritus and then Virgil, like just the, the bucolic mode. And it seems like you kind of need a city to produce that kind of text. Like you need people to be pulled out of the country for you to have nostalgia about that kind of work. And like Virgil was not chilling on a farm, right? He was working in a poetic tradition that allowed him to kind of play with these modes and ideas. And I wonder with him, like, I like that he doesn't surrender to this tiny house vision of life in the country, that it would be this, I don't know, cure for whatever the national ill is. 
that the country is where there's more destruction in a lot of in a lot of ways. I mean, and that's especially true here, right? Like if you just drive through rural Minnesota, you can see like, okay, there's there's been some serious deforestation. This is an artificial landscape as much as a city. And I think he makes that kind of clear, which I, I appreciated that. And it helped me kind of reorient my thinking around the ways in which we, especially in America, use the country, use rural people as a way to kind of uphold what we think America is. And obviously that has disastrous effects. Right. The idea that whenever anything goes down, kind of the, the New York Times is going to send a reporter to this, this same truck stop in Iowa and, and get, get the takes of, yeah, there's a sort of authenticity or realness that's conferred like on the rural. Yeah. As if those people don't have like flat screen TVs and the internet, they're not buying stuff on Amazon or something like, no, they are. Yeah, and we certainly get that sense throughout this book that the rural, the countryside, um, this sort of old world on the wandering, the hidden, the dark paths is being manipulated, is being kind of messed with, is being like encroached on by cities and big box stores and this sort of architecture of modernity, which like Tassan is pretty harsh on for the most part. Although at the same time, I mean, it's just interesting that as almost a map for his journey, he takes this sort of French bureaucratic report about the, uh, what is it, the hyper-rural districts of France, right, that need to be modernized and they don't have sufficient, you know, high-speed internet and <laughs> they need to be kind of brought up to speed. And he takes this as almost his itinerary. These are the places that I, I want to go to. So yeah, I think there's absolutely that tension at work between the urban and, I mean, Tassan's coming from the background of, I think, being the son of, you know, prominent French intelligentsia. He's very much a part of the Parisian literary world, but he seems to be strongly drawn by this idea of retreat, right? Or like being able to withdraw from the world in some way. I always think of that as like a very American thing, right? I heard a little clip from the Grateful Dead's road manager, tour manager, and he's like, oh yeah, Americans, they're always like British people. They don't get in their car and look for Britain, right? But Americans are all like, they're going to drive out there and discover America. What is America? How do I fit in? And I mean, I feel like that's true, right? Because of the sheer mass of our country. You always wonder like, did I get the thing? Is this the American thing? Right. And of course, it's not monolithic and you can never get all of it. <laughs> That's right. But what's interesting to me is that he has that same desire. Like he is doing that with France. Like he is kind of looking for, for readers like you or me, this is a history of France in a kind of pointillistic way. Yeah, it maybe still seems possible in a way that the sort of discovering America thing seems you know, just completely beyond the scope of what any one person could do. But it does seem like he has that sort of ambition here to some extent. Actually, since we're on the, the subject of Americans, I'll read one of my personal favorite passages from this book, which is the, the arrival of some touring American cyclists. It's a nice little passage. At times like these, I would slowly slink down into a bit of depression with my eyes half closed, surrounded by a large group of American cyclists. They were around 60 years old with a tanned and taut beauty of tennis players, their cycling jerseys drenched in sweat. The English language brought them great joy and they laughed a great deal displaying their bleached teeth. They yelled at each other from one table across to another and drank cold glasses of rosé drops of which could be seen falling from the lips of the women among them. They knew how to live, and they had no qualms about showing it. There were entire tourist agencies in Provence that organized such cycling trips, providing the routes and bicycles so that hundreds of cyclists could make their way around Ventoux before returning to spend their evenings in a welcoming gîte. In Tibet, pilgrims also made their way around stupas, and sacred mountains in tatters, sporting hallucinated gazes and faces darkened by charcoal smears. In the end, a beggar's pilgrimage and an American's hiking trip 
were pretty much the same thing, a way to evade boredom. My current neighbors did a much better job at fighting off neurasthenia than the dandies from Normandy. They partook in a technicolor Provence, a postcard landscape with tiny villages flanked by ochre-colored mountains. There was way too much class under this arbor. Suddenly, I was overcome by the creeping feeling that I was not dressed in the proper attire. When an American arrives somewhere nearby, the French always seem to feel as if they resemble some sort of country bumpkin from Normandy in 1944. I got up and quietly departed so as not to disturb these beautiful pink creatures. I had no ill feelings toward them. I didn't think to myself that behind every perfectly manicured smile resided the mask of an ogre. No, nothing, no sarcasm. Truth be told, I envy their expressions of happiness. I love that passage because he gets to have it both ways. He gets to put them down. He gets to put himself down. But he also gets to, it's very funny. These pink creatures, their bleached teeth. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel we have to uh, say, say that here, that this is just often a really funny book and that uh, his, his sense of humor really is such a joy uh, throughout it and sort of brings the proceedings down to earth too, um, not seeming quite as self-serious as they might otherwise. Yeah, for sure. I actually have a question for you, Eric. It's, it's something that you have to ask yourself reading this book, right? Like, how do you kind of conceive of the invisible paths, the wandering paths of the, the English title? And like, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, it's a really good question. My experience that could be somewhat analogous to this was walking through like the Lake District in England, where like Wordsworth and Keats and they all had their cottages and whatnot. And you would kind of just like be walking along a fence for a while. And it was pretty clear that these paths are just sort of like, I think of a phrase from Updike that has always stuck in my head, a rubbed consensus, you know, rather than like a, a formal official pathway. So, I mean, there's that very literal sense of it. Yeah, I'm trying to find, okay, have you ever seen anything with Timothy Speed Levitch? No, I don't think I have. He was like a tour guide in New York. And he, there's a really good documentary about him. I think it's called, it, yeah, it's called The Cruise. And he thinks there are kind of two modes of moving through the world. And one is like the commute, which is like getting somewhere. And the cruise is kind of like just wandering. But it's like paying attention to things, right? Like letting the cruise kind of move through you, you know? Uh, he's a really weird guy. He talks kind of like this and he, he has a really high uh, words per minute count. But he is incredibly charming. And what he does is he gives these hyper tours of New York where he'll be like, okay, that is where this writer lived. And five years later, this actress was coming back from the actor's studio when she, you know, like, and everything kind of converges in this space. Um, and you can see that, like, you're participating in this movement. You know, I don't mean movement like an artistic movement, but this unfolding of things. And it's like by being aware of that, maybe you can actually get to some other place, you know? I mean, like maybe that this path that is kind of off-road might give you some other train of thought that can get you somewhere else, that can maybe get us out of this like global funk is maybe too light of a word, but you know what I mean? Just to, <laughs> yeah. not, just to not like pour on the despair. Yeah, it feels like a melancholy path in some way, but also one that sort of opens possibility. And I think part of what makes it full of possibilities is that you're sort of like shedding off part of yourself to walk these paths, right? I think of, um, there's this great essay by Virginia Woolf, Street Haunting, where it's sort of like you step down sort of out of the bourgeois house and you go kind of into the square and you become an anonymous person among other people. And I feel like, you know, maybe Tassan, even though this is obviously not an urban chronicle he's out there trying to avoid people but there's that similar sense of sloughing off part of your identity right that you step out into the forest like beyond the context of the rest of your life and you become this kind of anonymous figure and we were talking earlier about even driving through space but these kind of interstitial moments in our lives where we're kind of untraceable I, I feel like that's something that I like a something I really am seeking out and like hungering for are those moments where like 
I can't be traced where I'm not leaving some kind of trail. Right. You kind of step out of the American casino and get the cameras off you and the pit bosses or whatever. And you're like, oh, like you're off the grid. Yeah. Right. I did want to ask you about that. You know, that fantasy is there too about, well, if, you know, if I could go buy a plot of land somewhere, cheap plot of land, right? And get a generator and and just grow a paranoid ted kaczynski beard (laughs) just go from there i mean what's like your comfort level with nature like i had a childhood where i was often taken to like national parks in the woods and was made to camp for long periods and did a lot of hiking through you know scenic mountain ranges and gorges and whatnot And it kind of (laughs) somewhat turned me against um, sort of the outdoors experience. (laughs) You know, I I just sort of overdosed at it as a kid. But um, I'm curious about, would you go backpacking? Is that something you would do? I would do it. I've never done it, though. So maybe, you know, maybe that tells you all you need to know. I love like every animal. Mosquitoes, I'm kind of cool with. If they don't bite me, I can love them. And so it's like, I'm always on the lookout for weird animals and birds and, you know, like rabbits in the yard even. So yeah, I do have like, like I have a lot of like climate anxiety and I don't know, hope that we can, you know, renegotiate our relationship, obviously, with like non-human life on this planet. But, you know, I think also it's like, as far as like, as a writer, I really do feel like when I'm around people and I can listen in on their conversations and just kind of watch them. I do feel like very energized. I think I could go to a cabin and like work on some writing and have a really nice time. You record a seminal, you know, indie folk album and whatever. But I do feel like language does just like happen between people. You know what I mean? And I'm always kind of interested in little snippets of talk and stuff like that. So I guess I could like bounce between those poles. Probably not, uh, uh, you know, Lake, Lake Baikal in Siberia for six months. Yeah, Ellen, I, maybe I could, but I would just be interested in the people I would, the one person I could see. I would probably really get into the animal life or whatever. Something interesting could happen. And I would try it if someone's like, oh, we have a new residency. Uh, you can go to Siberia. I'm wary of that fantasy sometimes. I just see the flannel shirt. You know what I mean? I can see the, sure. I can see the French press coffee maker. <laughs> And I don't want to, I don't know if I should lean into it. You know, I already have enough jazz records. I just don't, I don't know if I could be a jazz dad, like Boney Verrett up in the cabin. I just don't know, you know, (laughs) I don't want to lean too hard into my own demographic of white guy. Sure. I I understand. (laughs) There is this remarkable moment in the, uh, on the wandering paths. It's sort of a quick, you know, Tassan doesn't linger on it too long, but he's at this little forest chapel and there's a hermit living there and the hermit is is reading Tassan. And uh, yeah, I think his name's Lucian. He's hanging out. So this hermit is is reading. I mean, that's kind of the dream, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like the normal writer thing is like you're on an airplane and like you're like behind somebody and they have your book. Like that's like the the fantasy that happens for some people. <laughs> but the idea that like one guy who has sworn off humanity has your book. He's like, I've got this and I've got the Bible. I just kind of that's that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's kind of just dropped in there. You know, it feels like a little bit of a humble brag on, on Tassan's part. But you understand if that really happened, you would have to put it in, right? You would have to. It's too funny because it's like he's confronted with himself that he is a product that has also been sold to somebody. That's right. Yeah. And it does speak to kind of the level of cultural saturation that Tassan seems to have in France. I wanted to mention, too, that there are some films relating to Tassan, if people are interested. There is actually one being made out of On the Wandering Pass, which I don't believe it's been released yet, but it's in the works. Um, It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it doesn't like scream out that, you know, this is something that should be made into a movie. But um, I'll be interested to see what they do with it. Yeah, me too. It seems tricky to pull that off. Yeah, it's so interior and, and philosophical and all of the, the history that, that he deals with of, of France in the 20th century. I'm not sure how you would render all that. There's also uh, his Snow Leopard book um, has been made into just a beautiful documentary called The Velvet Queen. 
which is some of the just most gorgeous wildlife photography that I've ever seen. It's all shot in the Himalayas in Tibet. And um, some of the wildlife that you get to see from, you know, yaks to bears in the mountains to all of these wild birds of prey that look, you know, about a million years old. Kind of like these, these in the test in in this book too, the ones he sees in France, and it has a great score by um, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Oh, nice. Okay, um, I'm gonna watch this. And um, yeah, it's just stunning. And it's also sort of a meditation on you know this idea of the blind, like what a wildlife photographer does to kind of get their shots. Yeah, you know, which is to try to camouflage oneself. I think as Tassan puts it. I mean, they're they're like snipers, right? I mean, essentially, right? Yeah, they're just hanging out, trying to blend into the landscape. And I think Tassan says it's, you know, you're hiding there waiting for an animal that may or may not arrive, um, you know, doing it for, for days on end sometime. And just the level of commitment. I mean, especially something like the snow leopard, obviously, that's so um, reclusive, but other animals as well. You know, this idea of sort of the art of patience sort of takes us back to Jenny O'Dell, what we were talking about, which you bring up in your forward, and you're talking about a little bit at the beginning. But just the idea that at this point where we are kind of in the capitalist experiment, such as it is, that it's just taking such a toll on people. It seems that everybody's kind of working out that economy of like, how much can I take? before <laughs> I have to sort of like step away. And I don't know, it's just like the amount of burnout that I'm encountering, that people are really thinking a lot about kind of these ecologies of, of mind in a sense. I mean, things are going to change. They, they just cannot keep going the way they're going. Whether that's just how people work, or that's like a relationship with stuff that isn't, you know, humans. I just think it's going to happen. <laughs> it, like this, it can't go on like this. It's kind of a bleak thing to think about in some ways because there's shit will hit the fan. But I also think, you know, a book like this or a book like How to Do Nothing makes me think like there are these opportunities for us to reimagine what life looks like and what our lives could look like together. Yes, that's that's a really good note to end on, I think, and comes back to your syllabus for rejecting the world we've inherited, which we had at the beginning. So it all comes nicely full circle. We had hoped to be here today with the translator of the book, Drew Burke, and just wanted to give a shout out to Drew for his outstanding work on this book and really bringing it to the University of Minnesota Press in the first place. He's a consulting editor for the press, and he works with a lot of French publishers, other publishers throughout Europe to help find books for us and really kind of turned us on to this project. Well, thank you so much. Dan, for being here and for having this discussion with us today. It was my pleasure. And, you know, I this series you guys are doing, the books are so beautiful. I just think I'm really lucky to be a part of it. And yeah, th thanks for talking with me. It's wonderful. Thank you, Dan. Uh, we've got um, On the Wandering Path by Sylvain Tesson is out now in the Univocal series from University of Minnesota Press. And uh, thanks for everyone who made it through this and listened to this today.